You're in the midst of your festive celebrations when, boom, that familiar feeling in your tummy. You're calculating the minutes and you realise, I've got to go. Nothing offers more complete relief from diarrhoea and gas-related symptoms than Imodium Plus Comfort Tablets. Imodium, live life. Imodium Plus Comfort Tablets for acute diarrhoea and its gas-related symptoms. Always read the label. For claims verification, please call 0808 238 9999. I'm Dr. Zoe Williams, your host for Healthful, Superdrug's brand new podcast discussing the key topics that affect your health now. In this episode, we're going to be discussing all things gut health, from IBS to living with a stoma to looking after your tummy from the inside out. And joining me today are Emily Clarkson, journalist and author of Can I Speak to Someone in Charge? Emily has used her platform to discuss life living with IBS. The YouTuber, broadcaster and writer Hannah Witten, who has shared her journey living with a stoma after suffering with ulcerative colitis from a young age. Lottie Drynan, the founder of The Tummy Diaries and You've Got This. And Dr. Megan Rossi, founder of The Gut Health Clinic and author of Eat Yourself Healthy. Gosh, so many of you. How are you, everybody? Good, good. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. So to start off, can you tell me a little bit about your story? So Emily, what first made you decide to share your IBS journey online? I was actually thinking about this earlier, like the first time I did it, and I can't remember specifically what it was that inspired me to be quite so like open about my bowels. But <laughs> um, I think like a massive part of my, like what I do on Instagram particularly was just trying to like share the sort of less glamorous bits of life and be a bit more normal and like IBS was such a massive part the first few years particularly when I was trying to work out what was triggering me and what was making me feel awful basically Um, and it was just such a massive ugly part of my life that I just felt like a total fraud keeping a secret Um, so it wasn't really uh, I don't know it just it felt like such a relief and then it was like one in five people also have this and it just I don't know it just massively opened it up for me and just made me feel a lot better about something that I had previously been really ashamed of so yeah it sounds like no regrets. It sounds like it almost confirmed with you that what you were already trying to do was the right thing. So when you shared that, it, it confirmed it for you? Yeah, massively, because I think like what I've learned with my body, because it's like IBS, any gut thing really does make you get to know your body in a way that you probably didn't realise you had to before. Um, and a massive part of that for me was stress. And it's a really stressful thing when you feel like you can't even talk about it. So even just by opening the like conversation up for me into just basically what is my workspace allowed me to just feel a lot more validated and not like I was just sort of like harboring this shame. Brilliant. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Hannah, can you tell us a little bit about what life is like with a stoma and how you came to, to, I think it's really brave the way in which you've shared your story. Um, How did you come to decide to, to start sharing that? I don't really think it was a decision Um, Because I was already making content online and I mostly talk about sex. And so I'm like used to kind of tackling like potentially like awkward and taboo topics. And I think I'd spoken very briefly, like in just one video before about having ulcerative colitis. But through most of my time making content online, um, I was in remission. 
So it wasn't actually affecting me on a day-to-day basis. And then I just had this really extreme, severe flare-up that came out of nowhere. Um, And yeah, it it wasn't like I had a choice whether I could share it or not because I was so ill and I was hospitalised that I wasn't making any content and I effectively just like disappeared from the internet. Um, And then when I kind of was like in recovery and when I was back home and I was um, like adjusting to having had surgery and everything, one of the things that really helped me because it was just so quick, it was like within a month, my life had completely changed. Um, One of the things that really helped me was watching videos, reading blog posts, following like people on Instagram, especially other young women, because a lot of the materials that like the doctors and nurses would give me would have like old people (laughs) in in a rowing boat on the lake being like your life with a stone and I'm like I don't relate to this um so it, it was just like so amazing to find these other young women who had stomas and were just talking about their lives talking about how they managed their stoma but also just like living their best lives and just like going about their normal day-to-day life so that's kind of what it's like for me now I just like I just live my day-to-day life I just I just happen to have a stoma and I'm very lucky that my stoma has been very well behaved so far I've not had like too many um issues with it so my like day-to-day life now that I'm like out of the hardest bit of my surgery recovery like feels like normal to me now um yeah and then the talking about it online like it felt weird (laughs) to not acknowledge it especially because I kind of like already had this audience um and because these other women's videos and content had helped me so much I thought well there's clearly like something that I can do here by using my platform to talk about what happened to me so, so now when there are other women and I guess younger men as well in the same position, mm. when those doctors are handing them those leaflets with middle-aged people uh, in their caravans or whatever, we can say also, <laughs> that's Hannah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because with the sexuality content that I make, my audience is predominantly young women, but then with the stoma content and the like ulcerative colitis content and stuff, it's so much broader. I was at... Um, an event for um, Get Your Belly Out a couple of years ago and a 14-year-old boy came up to me and said, oh, I've got a stoma and I've seen your videos. Um, and then I've also had people who are much older than me mm-hmm. um, like say that they've seen my content as well about the stoma stuff. So it definitely reaches, like it affects so many people. Yeah. And speaking about Get Your Belly Out, over to Lottie, as well as discussing IBS, you share loads of pictures of your belly, <laughs> lots of pictures of bloating and your bloated <laughs> wardrobe. What What's inspired you to do this? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I've always been quite into fashion. I went to design uni and just always been into clothes. And when I was growing up sort of early to late teens it was like the bodycon dresses that were sort of in fashion and like the horrible like jody jeans and things like that that we would try and squeeze ourselves into and I remember I'd be like getting ready to go out with the girls and think oh my gosh I've got to get into these jeans and just the thought of it would just make me so stressed out that actually well now I know that probably that was what was causing the bloating and I'd be fine all day and think oh my god how am I going to get into this dress and sort of over time I realized why am I trying to to squeeze myself into these clothes when I'm not going to feel comfortable um, I'm not going to feel confident and actually I can find clothes that make me feel good and sort of work for my body rather than trying to make 
my body work for these clothes. So I sort of created hashtag my bloated wardrobe one day and people started using it. And it was amazing just seeing people with all different styles. I mean, sort of the, the craze now of the elasticated wardrobe, uh, elasticated waistband that I'm sure all of us love. Um <laughs> And just sort of choosing things that we know are going to be comfortable, even if we are having a flare up or we're not feeling great. And it's is that that the societal norms? I mean, I, I can't imagine how tricky that must be when there are certain clothes that we feel that we're meant to. This is what everyone's wearing. This is what we're, we're meant to wear. Uh, and of course, Emily, I know you feel really strongly about that. That a lot of your content is about you know you just do you. But for, for all three of you, how? has living with IBS, or in your case, Hannah, living with a stoma impacted on your life? Let's, we'll go back to Emily to start, shall we? Oh God, it's such a big question because it's just, <laughs> it's such a massive part of who I am. Um, and that's really mm. annoying because it's like a really lame character trait, like, oh, I get really bloated. But um, I I think it, you have to, oh, I, I felt like I had to get quite a lot more confident uh in making decisions that suited me like for a long time I was very like ashamed of of the illness because it isn't glamorous and it's not beautiful and it's uh, like what Lottie's saying there about like the clothes and stuff like I'm so aware of that as a teenager that and uh, like in my early 20s I just couldn't comfortably wear what other people were wearing and like I was such a people-pleasing like insecure person that not being able to that's hard to believe. I know. <laughs> it's been a real transformation, but um, yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I don't know. I just, I was, I was so ashamed of it. Basically, that's the way of describing it. And then I'd be really embarrassed about it, and like, because I am impossible to feed, and that like food was a massive um, problem for me. And I look, I recognise now at the beginning of my IBS stuff, a lot of it was um, very disordered eating patterns which had come through a, a teenage years of very disordered eating patterns and it was all a bit of a mess but it basically just left me feeling very ashamed of my body and not necessarily for, just for how it looked but how it was behaving and I was just embarrassed that I couldn't eat like other people were eating and I I just you can't be as like spontaneous when you have um a condi like any condition really with your gut and I, I don't know. I just, I hated that. So it, it took a lot for me to start prioritizing myself and my health, which is a big decision you have to stop. You have to make when you, when you, you know, you're in charge of your own treatment really. Um, so it was just putting a lot of trust in myself, which actually I think has made me a much happier and more confident person in other areas. Um, so it was just, I don't know, it's investing in your body, I guess, and investing in your yeah. own health, which you just, you know, it's not like you can just take a pill and this illness goes away. It's management. So, yeah, it's just you manage your life a bit better. I think you've got to be kind Lots to yourself. I could see you. I could see you nodding along yeah. there, agreeing, agreeing with everything. I mean, mine and Emily's stories are very similar. Like everything she says, Same I can totally <laughs> relate to. And I think for me, <laughs> um, I, I think for me, a big thing is, like Emily said, the disordered eating. And I actually had an eating disorder, which I think is a bit of a chicken and the egg thing, which came first, the IBS and the restrictive diet being put on that with sort of no guidance. Um, so being scared of food and also the anxiety um, as well. Like IBS gave me real anxiety because I can said it's a spontaneous that we really lose and I'm such a foodie I've been in events for most of my career so going out to eat is a big part of that and thinking 
okay, am I going to be able to eat anything? Am I going to have to say in front of all of my colleagues that I can't have X, Y, and Z? And then if I, or do I just have it and then be worried and have a flare up, whether that's the anxiety or the actual food causing it is sort of another issue, but it really, really anxiety inducing. But I mean, it has been like at its worst, it was really sort of tough, tough times. And it was horrible. It's, it can be a really debilitating illness. I think IBS can sometimes be just brushed off as all sort of embarrassing toilet habits or you're just farting all the time, stuff like that. But actually it can, it, I mean, the link between the gut and the brain, mm-hmm. as I'm sure we'll talk about, is so strong. Um, but I think, like, again, like Emily said, sort of having to understand our bodies and really get to know ourselves has actually been a blessing. I wish we didn't have to go through that bit to get there, yeah. but I now feel like I really do. I learned to listen to my body in a way that I probably wouldn't have done if I didn't have IBS. It's, it's really interesting that you you both share that that commonality that it's been a really tough time and you know as a young woman as well life it's, it's hard to be a young woman anyway um but it has great great to hear there's some positives come out of that and I know Megan as our professional will will share she'll have loads of experience of, of growing about this and we will definitely talk about the link between the the brain and the gut but Hannah coming to you living with with a stoma from I mean the reason that those flyers from the GPs have middle-aged people on is that it is relatively Mm -hmm. rare actually that people as young as you um find themselves in a position where they're living with a stoma but how how would you say it's impacted you um in lots of different ways um there's like this element of I really relate to the spontaneity thing like there's just a few more things I have to kind of like think about and consider before like doing something or like when I'm planning on going somewhere and like um a few times I've maybe like gone out and forgotten to bring my like emergency stoma bag supplies with me and then that immediately sends me like being really really anxious being like oh my goodness what if I have a leakage I don't have anything with me and so there's like all of these added things I kind of have to think about um but then there are a few good things like um I never feel the need to go to the toilet like I don't get those urges anymore my body just like does it so I don't have to like worry about it's a weird one like I don't have to worry about being out and about and like needing a poo but but I do have to worry about being out and about my bag filling up and not being able to empty it. And they're kind of like two different things um, that I don't know, like I'm, I can't quite decide which is better because I feel like I used to be able to like, if I can't get to a toilet, I'll just like hold it in and then the feeling will disappear. Whereas like you can't, <laughs> the feeling of a full bag doesn't disappear. It's like, it just stays full. Um the other thing is I have to get up in the middle of the night every night to empty my bag. Um, and I don't know whether it's that or it could just be a really long-term side effect of having two major surgeries and just like that kind of like really long-term recovery from like bodily trauma um, where I'm tired. <laughs> I'm still so tired. Um, and like, it's been almost three years and I honestly I need like nine hours of sleep and I get so exhausted if I have any less than that but and also it's been three years and I've not had a full night's sleep for the last three years because my sleep is broken every night because I have to get up and change uh, and empty my bag that to me is actually the probably like the most like frustrating thing about it on a day-to-day basis um 
I, well, I do fart through my stoma, but uh, it's not one that you can smell. So if you smell a fart in a room, it is not me. <laughs> it's not you. <laughs> it is not me. You might be able to hear my stoma fart if you're like close enough to me, but you definitely won't smell it. If you go to the toilet after me, that smell was definitely me and I'm sorry. <laughs> I love that. I could just imagine everyone sat at the dinner table on Christmas Day and somebody started and you'd just be like, ah, smug. Well, you guys know it ain't me. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a great feeling. BioCult is a unique multi-strain live bacteria supplement with 14 strains of live bacteria to complement the existing gut flora naturally present in a healthy person's digestive system. Our multi-award-winning nutritional food supplement is a naturally powerful formulation targeting the digestive tract and the strains of live bacteria within BioCult are proven to survive the high acidity of the stomach. What's your gut feeling? Choose BioCult in store or online at superdrug.com. Oh, so let's let's bring in uh, Megan. So Megan is probably my most trusted gut health friend. She's in my she's in my telephone book. And whenever I have friends who have problems with their guts, who one of my friends who was about to get married last year, I send them to Megan and she fixes them. But but what was it about gut health that first got you excited and interested? And you know, you obviously you're a registered dietitian as well as an academic. Um, but why did gut health sort of gain your interest? Yeah, so I I grew up on a farm in Australia um, where essentially good gut health was very much inherent to my upbringing. So, you know, eating fresh fruit and veg, playing in the dirt, all those sorts of good things. But actually, it wasn't until I was in my final year studying nutrition and dietetics where I had my first conscious encounter with the gut. And unfortunately, it wasn't a positive one. So I um, was really, really close with my grandma, who I lost to bowel cancer. So certainly my first relationship with the gut wasn't a positive one. I I honestly hated it. I was so angry at it. And I then started to work as a dietitian in a hospital setting. So with really quite sick people where they had different cancers or um, mental health issues or type 2 diabetes. And what I found was so profound is they're all coming to me complaining of gut issues. And I thought, gosh, what is it about this organ? Yes, I got my grandma had gut issues because the disease was in her gut. But why are all these other people having gut issues? And, you know, it was 2010 at times, not a lot of research had come out about the gut at that stage. And I thought, you know what, I really, I owe it to my grandma and to my patients to try understand more about this, you know, somewhat misunderstood organ. So I decided to, you know, sign away my early 20s to undertake a PhD in the area to trying to look at whether we nourish the gut through the right nutrition and we use pre and probiotics in my um, clinical trial, whether that in turn could improve the health of other organs outside the gut, like our mental health and things like our liver and our heart. And, you know, fast forward through that clinical trial, it was a positive one and it really it just blew all our minds to think that actually a lot of our health and happiness is, you know, essentially in our own hands. And I was also very fortunate during my PhD to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team and actually found the girls that had the most performance anxiety also had the most number of gut issues. And I think that was a really important observation for me and that it wasn't just in this disease state where the gut was having this important role, but actually in elite athletes, the gut was quite central. And it was really at that point where I knew I wanted to dedicate the rest of my career to gut health because it was just so important and I could help so many people. 
uh, well, I personally and so many of my friends are grateful that you did because you've uh, you've helped out so many people. And I think it's incredible that we've got three young women on this call who are so open and honest and comfortable now, at least anyway, to talk about their gut issues. But I, I do think from my experience as a GP that you ladies are the exception and not the norm. I think a, a lot of people, especially women out there struggling with tummy issues, don't find it that easy to talk about. Um, so why is that? I want to ask all of you, really. Um, let's start with Lottie. Why do you think that it is so difficult for, for the majority of people to talk about their tummy troubles? Um, I think a few reasons. I think when we think of gut health, we do often think of the bowel and poo. And there is still such a taboo around poo. It's not seen seen as glamorous. I remember when the words um, irritable bowel syndrome first got thrown at me, I almost sort of rejected the diagnosis. I thought, oh, no, that doesn't, I don't want that. That doesn't sound good. Um, and I think we are definitely getting more and more open with it, but not quite enough yet. Um and I also think as well, as Megan was saying, there's there's still so much more research coming out and we're definitely getting that. I mean, even in the past sort of three years where it's become more of my job, I've started to see so much more, more coming out every year, but there's still not that much. Um, so I think it can often sort of be dismissed. Either we don't understand it or we maybe just think, oh, it's just a stomachache um, and don't really sort of really give it the time that it needs um so I think yeah sort of the unglamorous side of it and not enough research is probably sort of stopping people from being so open about it but then when you look at the stats I mean what is it is it one in five people with IBS now and then plus all the other gut conditions that we've got I mean every time I speak about it someone now I'll like I mean I had a guy come and hang the doors just before lockdown and he was asking me what I was doing and I told him um and he was like oh yeah I think I've got IBS and my daughter so I mean, that was the like carpenter guy. Like, every, you just as soon as you start talking to to people about it, they d- really do open up, and it's like an instant bonding. I mean, that's how me and M sort of met. I was like, oh, she's got IBS too, and then we started chatting, and it is it's almost like a little club. I mean, probably not the coolest club to be in, poop but club. it is. <laughs> yeah, poop club at poop house. Um, <laughs> I think once you start talking, you don't stop, but it's just hard to get into that. You know, you know, it's always the poop conversations. Eventually, if a con- conversation goes on long enough with anyone in any setting you end up talking about poo so <laughs> I want to be in the poo club I think it's a very cool club oh yeah I've had to train my husband <laughs> everyone is welcome in the poo club everyone's got a good poo story <laughs> and I actually analyze poop so I also work as a, a research fellow at King's where you know frequently I'm in the lab analyzing poop and there is you know it's the most insightful thing it gives us so much information as to what's happening in the body so I'm a big advocate for people to kind of check in on their poo every now and again and just see what's going on happening yeah we need I have patients who you know they're having tummy troubles and they're coming to me and whether it's loose stools or constipation or whatever and I say you know so have you noticed any blood in your poo have you noticed any mucus and the number of patients are like oh I don't look at it no but you must you know this is your poo your body made this and this can give you real clues to your health so we do need to definitely reduce the stigma and we need to get a bit more comfortable I'm not sure I really want to start studying other people's poo Megan I'll leave that to you but I do reckon that people need to be cool with looking at their own (laughs) Lottie's so right though when you said that like once you get started on it like especially with people who also have bowel issues like you cannot stop another friend of mine who's got 
IBS. Um, she doesn't live in the same place as me, so it's like a long distance friendship. And she <laughs> sent me a photo of her poo once. <laughs> and really? I've had other friends actually send me pictures of their poo too, because it's just like once your friends know you're the poo friend, right? Once your friends know <laughs> that you are like totally down for the poo chat, yeah. yeah. Like honestly, it's well, yeah. It was a, a friend who had. Um, I don't think she has any bowel issues, but she was just like, I just, my poo came out and it was in a love heart shape in the, in the toilet <laughs> So she liked to show me the picture of it. I was like, this is amazing. Isn't there a website called Rate My Poo? Yes, yeah, my face brother it. uses it. Oh no. I hope the love oh, heart poo made it. I feel like, oh, that's such a throwback. I feel like I've not thought about that website in about 10 years you know you know boys are much were... more comfortable sharing poo pictures but they you know <laughs> even if they're not having bowel issues they show off if they've had a really big poo i've been shown so many poo pictures by ex-boyfriends my brother used to call me into the bathroom and be like oh, no, I'm dead. I'm like, ah, I've, I've, this is... <laughs> i was gonna say i've done that with my partner in my menstrual cup look what i did <laughs> Emily, do you think that women find it more difficult to have these types of conversations than men? And why, if so, why? 100%. And there were like a a few things, but just on the rate my poo leap, literally, (laughs) if you were to look at the statistics for that website, I guarantee it would be like 98% male users. And that's like the difference. I grew up with a brother and a sister and just even the way, like my brother and sister both have very normal bowels, but the way that mine, like my stomach was talked about or like how I spoke about my stomach versus how my brother spoke about his stomach, his perfectly healthy stomach was just so different. And it's because like when boys fight, it's funny. And then when girls fight, it's gross. So like there's that element. There's the fact that it is so unsexy. And like when you're like a teenage girl, like all you want to be is sexy. And there's like nothing (laughs) good about that. And then there's the other thing that I think Lottie said it, um, like the amount, you know, the lack of research and stuff, but also the fact that women are just expected to experience more stomach pain in their life. Like the fact that we have period pains and this like, this is part of a massive conversation, but something that like I've noticed because as well as having IBS and I spoke to Megan about this before, um, like in a health capacity, but something that what my symptoms include vomiting and it is a part of IBS, but it's not spoken about nearly as much. And it's quite alarming it was quite alarming for like a good year people in like well it's anxiety and I was like ah I know like it's very anxiety inducing like when you're being sick all the time but I think it's quite because it is so stressful and we do then get emotional or I certainly did and I think a lot of girls do and that's perfectly normal because your body is going through something quite traumatic and then I think when you get emotional the the conversation often gets swayed away from your very real symptoms and you start talking about your mental health and it just all gets very messy. And I would get very frustrated when I would have conversations with professionals and it would be like, do you think you might be a bit stressed? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know. Everything I eat comes out one way or the other. Do you think that would be stressful? <laughs> like, yes, I'm stressed, but you know, oh. so I think like it's a plethora of reasons and like on the surface, it's women don't talk about it because it isn't <laughs> sexy and poo's not sexy. But then when you get into it, I think there's actually a whole host of reasons why girls like stomach health or whatever isn't perhaps taken as seriously as it should be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the downside to that is that IBS is actually so much more common in women than it is in men. Megan, why is that? 
Yeah, look, it's for every one male who has IBS, around two women have have IBS. And we think one of the biggest factors that, you know, plays a role in that is hormones. And I think all females can relate that around our periods, even if we don't have IBS, we get a little bit of kind of gut symptoms. And so we certainly do know that hormones, you know, are, are key to that. We know that Things like testosterone, so obviously the hormone more predominant in males, actually has a bit of an anti-pain effect. So that kind of protects them a little bit in that way, whereas estrogen actually has more of a stimulatory effect. Um, and we know then there's a relationship between hormones and our gut bacteria, so we all contain those trillions of bacteria, and they certainly can produce and metabolize different hormones. So again, there is that link and coordination there. And then if we look more into the, I guess, the physiological differences of males and females, we do see that um, males are more likely to have um, IBS diarrhea predominant. So there's different types of IBS. You've got your four different types. You've got your constipation. You've got your diarrhea. You've got your mix. And then you've got the ones kind of, the poo's kind of normal looking and we call it unspecified. So males are much more likely to have the diarrhea type, whereas females are much more likely to have the constipation type. And again, that just comes down to the different physiological functions of our gut between genders. Um, so there's many different factors. And then obviously also the gender roles and, and how we deal with stress is definitely going to come into play, uh, where a lot of females seem to, particularly mothers, you know, seem to repress a lot of the stress that they're under and, and they keep it in their gut. And that seems to have, you know, that, that waking effect and trigger of, of IBS. And I feel, I feel like we can't have this conversation without sort of giving people a few warnings because a lot of people who are having symptoms and we're talking about the various symptoms of IBS being changing bowel habit, you know, bloating, abdominal discomfort, wind and vomiting, which is, which is less common, but can be a sign of IBS. And as a GP, I feel it's really important that people shouldn't just assume that it's IBS if they're getting those symptoms. We very much do want to exclude other diseases first, because there are so many things that can cause those symptoms, some which are relatively benign and some which are actually more serious. So Megan, how would you guide somebody if they thought they were getting, if it was a one-off, then fine, but if they're repeatedly getting any of these symptoms, what's the best approach? Yeah, Zoe, that, that is so important because there is around half a million people living in the UK with undiagnosed celiac disease. And that's because a lot of them think, oh, look, I get a bit of bloating, my stoops, my pills are a little bit kind of funky looking. It's probably just IBS because they've been told that. So it is so, so important if you are having these ongoing gut symptoms that you do see your GP as a first port of call before you start tinkering with your diet and things like that. The GP can do a number of really simple tests for things like ruling out celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, including ulcerative colitis, as, as Hannah mentioned, and, and Crohn's disease, and then some of the uh, the cancers like colon cancer and cervical cancer. So those are the ones that we sort of um, want to make sure that the gut symptoms aren't aren't being masked by. Um, so that that absolutely is really key. And when I see patients in clinic, some of them um, haven't gone to their GP to get those tests yet. And I say, look, it is is so important. Don't be embarrassed. You know, GPs. <laughs> As you're going to say, Zoe, have seen everything. Nothing can you oh, know, surprise everything. them or embarrass them. Like they've seen it all. So it's just so important you get those things ruled out and then we can get to the bottom of it. And I do understand, again, in clinic, a lot of um, patients that I see say, I went to my GP, I got the test, it came back negative, and they just told me I have just IBS and I need to just Google 
the diet on the internet. And, you know, that, that in itself is, is really upsetting and frustrating and, you know, it's bad advice. Yeah, it, it really is unhelpful. But the thing is, again, uh, GPs, my husband's a GP, so obviously I understand that you guys have so many things to understand and the research around IBS is so new and it's constantly coming out. And, you know, often within the NHS, you're not necessarily supported to refer everyone to a dietitian to get the, you know, qualified dietary advice. So it's really, really difficult for everyone. But I think um, what, you know, if people are listening to this who have IBS and have been told that they just have IBS, you know, don't let that get you down because we know IBS can be so debilitating. And I was going to mention before a nice stat um, was shown that it was in a survey of around 200 people with IBS. And it said that overall on average, they would be willing to give up 25% of their remaining life to be symptom free. That's how much is impacting them. So, you know, there is no questioning. It can be hugely debilitating. But we now have the research to show that actually there's a number of not just diet but lifestyle strategies that can have remarkable, you know, improvements on people's IBS symptoms. And and I think the reality of the situation is if you, you know, if you go to your GP and you have the tests and they do exclude things that would need treatment, like the things that that Megan listed there, another important one, especially for women who are a little bit older, um, bloating is one of the commonest symptoms actually of ovarian cancer. So not to frighten people, if you have bloating, ovarian cancer is way down the list in the things that it's likely to be, but therefore certainly that shouldn't something that shouldn't be ignored. Um, but what's likely to happen is, yeah, your GP should, you know, shouldn't say it's just IBS because it, it can be so debilitating. But in terms of what your GP can offer, um, we are very limited in our access to um, dietitians, which is sad. And I think it's something I, I I really hope it's something that will change as we move forward because so many of our um, patients will benefit from that one-to-one ad- advice um, and support from a dietitian. And I think as we're learning with healthcare that so many illnesses and chronic diseases are so closely linked to um, our diet, I do hope it's something we'll make progress with. Um, but if people aren't referred to a dietitian, which is going to be the case for most people, where's the best place for them to go. I mean, ideally, if they can afford to see somebody privately, that's fantastic. But if they can't, where's the best place for them to go next? Yeah, look, I, um, I have seen this time and time again and appreciate that seeing a private dietitian is not accessible to everyone. And I, I, def- I definitely don't want to be plugging my book, but literally that is the reason why I wrote. <laughs> We've all got it. We're all waving. We've all got Megan's book <laughs> and it's amazing. That's what I was going to say when you said like, where would you direct them? I was like, Megan's book, say Megan's book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I, I really don't like from that perspective of, of saying that, but that's literally why I wrote it. And the way I wrote it in terms of like a very step-by-step guide where I talk about the first line strategy. So things to watch out for in terms of looking at, you know, the basics, are they having enough fiber or too much fiber? Is it the caffeine and and things like coffee? Is it the alcohol? Is it that you're having heaps of smoothies and, and, or artificial sweeteners and those sorts of things. And then if it's not those sort of kind of first line strategies, we then look at things like um, a modified low FODMAP diet. So for those who've, who've got IBS, a lot of them have heard of this low FODMAP diet. It's a very, it's quite a very strict, um, and it could be a dangerous start if you try and do it yourself. So in the book, it, it's a it's called the format light approach. So it's a very safe approach to do it yourself. So if you want to do the full blown, you should always do that with a dietitian. Don't use uh, Dr. Google, all that sort of stuff. It's very dangerous. It can create, you know, really poor eating habits and all that sort of stuff. But 
it goes through some of them. But another really key element of, of IBS management is looking at your lifestyle and your stress levels. And I'm sure we'll talk more into that. But um, it's certainly not to say that IBS is in people's head because I know a lot of people have heard that and that's literally not the case. But it's just highlighting the science we have around this gut-brain connection. And everyone knows about it. I mean, if you were nervous, you get the butterflies in your tummy. It happens with everyone. So it's not in people's head. It's just that some people's connection between the gut and the brain is a lot stronger and that can be exacerbated by things like further stress and, and lifestyle uh, factors. So, and I think it's so important that we will come on to that and we'll give that a bit more time and we'll talk about that gut-brain connection. Um, just before we do, I kind of just want to go around and just get a little bit of final advice really from, from everybody. Um, Emily, what do you have any advice for someone who is listening to this and thinking this sounds like me i'm really struggling with my tummy troubles obviously we've talked about the the getting checked by your gp making sure it's not something that needs um medical treatment but beyond that what would you advise um first of all like following literally i'd say lottie's page has been one of the most helpful things for me because it's so important that you like for a very isolating condition it's very different and all of our symptoms are very different but it is incredibly like the one thing we all have in common is that we're quite isolated um so i think following people that just normalize it relentlessly is so important because it's more than just like having one conversation with like your carpenter it's like remembering that like people are going through this every day and you're not on your own and like yeah I think that that's really important but also just giving yourself a break when we were saying you know like when GPs say it's just it's just IBS or you know it's made worse by your stress it's like okay that it still deserves a lot of um airtime in your own life and I think like the the idea that it's so like so kind of small and oh we're triggering it ourselves but being stressed and over emotional and uh, what do we like you know it, we just downplay it all the time and I think just like unpack it all give it all space work it out take time like just give yourself time to cope with it and learn to live with it because you know we just try and like take it and we take our diagnosis and we're like oh okay and then we just kind of keep doing a million other things and it's not gonna work you're just gonna burn yourself out so just give yourself a minute to like work it out and find the resources that help you the most and yeah like follow Lottie and join and join join the poo club yeah, exactly. Lottie, anything anywhere else that you direct people anything that you found useful um, yeah I think for me the biggest thing was actually understanding sort of what what it is so um, Megan's book was incredible for me because before I mean I got very little help from GPs and all the specialists I saw um, so actually I, for me I have to understand something to be able to sort of manage it so if we can understand what what's actually going on um, we don't have to know every single intricate bit of the science but understanding I mean specifically and I, I know you said we'll come on to it but the gut brain axis if we understand that that's actually even a thing then we can try to manage our symptoms and manage um, manage the illness better so anywhere you can sort of podcast books anything like that I just found so beneficial and just absorbed myself and it took a long time for me to think actually I need to take this into my own hands because I just kept thinking no it's fine I'll, I'll get it must be something else or I'll get more help from but we don't always get a lot of guidance from um GPs I'm sure we would with you Zoe but <laughs> um, I certainly <laughs> didn't so yeah sort of just immersifying myself into all the information I can and like Em said I mean oh I know we're, we're like recommending each other but Hannah and Emily's account has also really helped me and just hearing that conversation being well just hearing it talked about is really really yeah. helpful 
Yeah. And no, and I do, I do sympathize with you because I, I do know that, you know, GPs often, we have the best intentions. We're very restricted on time. But I think sometimes when it comes to a condition like IBS, I think sometimes it's kind of a relief from our point that we're not giving you a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis or, or celiac. And we think, do you know what? We kind of forget that this is some, well, it's not that we forget. We kind of think, do you know what? Actually, this is something that doesn't really require me to take to the next step of investigation and treatment. Now what you need, what we recognize that you need is actually somewhat of a lifestyle overhaul and support, long-term support and education. And I think sometimes we know we just, we don't have that as a resource and I'm not making excuses or defending. I'm really highlighting, I think, where where we fall down a little bit because perhaps there are little things we can do. And I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot to be said and it's something that's happening more and more for for patients and people with lived experience educating the healthcare professionals rather than always being the other way around. Um, so and I think a lot of us who are at sort of the social media medics, we learn all of that. We learn all of that online from people like yourselves and it makes us better doctors. So, so there we go. Uh, that's my thoughts on that one. Hannah, um, so kind, kind of a slightly different question in, in your case. I'm really glad that your ulcerative colitis as a disease is, is calm and not giving you problems because that's a whole different podcast, living with inflammatory bowel disease. But, but living life with a stoma um, and doing, so, doing it so wonderfully and sharing so openly the way you, you get on with life and you don't let it hold you back. What advice would you give to other people, perhaps people who it's new to them or actually somebody who is, you've been told by their doctors that this is something that's likely to happen. How can they prepare themselves and, and start to, I guess, just plan for that in the best way? Yeah, I do get a lot of questions from people who are, yeah, they've just got their stoma or like you said, they've been told that um, it might be quite likely that they, they might need one. And honestly, I think one of the hardest things is not completely like disassociating from your stoma because a lot of people um would think that think of their stoma as like this thing that they do not want to associate with like it is not a part of them they do not relate to it at all um they see themselves one way and then this uh their stoma is something completely different that has come along and ruined their life changed their life um whatever it might be it kind of like is seen as the enemy and it is seen as this like unsexy like life debilitating thing where actually for a lot of people who have stomas um it's like this life-giving thing um because of whatever there's many reasons why someone might need a stoma um but for a lot of us it's because we were incredibly ill before and the stoma actually allowed us to live a healthier um life um and one of the main things that i've done to be able to kind of like relate to my stoma in a way that is like friendly um that is accepting um is naming it um so my stoma is called mona and uh she she her pronouns and i just it's it, for me, it, like, it really helps being able to kind of, like, reference her, like, being like, oh, that's just Mona, or, like, um, oh, Mona's, like, playing up today, like, oh, what's she doing? Like, 
like as if she's got a personality of her own but she's like a part of me like you know she's like a pet yeah that is like attached to me I was gonna times. say that it sounds like you talk about her like you would a dog or a cat she's playing yeah, up today like, it's really it's really, really demanding like, today <laughs> yeah sometimes your pets are a nuisance right um and they're life-changing <laughs> um but you love them when you have a pet you love it you do love them yeah, yeah exactly um so that for me is like a a really like really simple thing just like just name it like even even if you're like in the really early stages and you're just like I just cannot even look at myself I cannot even like acknowledge it try and like just come up with a name and start in your language like referencing your stoma as that name rather than like it and rather than like as something that is completely separate to you um I think that is a really good place to start um even if it doesn't feel like that yet but like using that in your language can I think like definitely really helped me um and then just knowing that it it honestly is not the end of your life (laughs) like it, it truly truly isn't um it can give you so much more um access it can give you so much more health it like it the the possibilities of what having a stoma can give you um you know it for me like i i was on death's door like and uh, three years later i haven't like had any colitis symptoms like i'm it's it's honestly not what i was expecting to happen to me um but it's giving you like, your life back, it, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's honestly How has it affected fine. relationships? Yeah, so I, I was already in a relationship um when I got ill. Um we we were about a year in. And now we're married, so ah, clearly it's fine. <laughs> there we go. Congratulations. Um, thanks. Um no, it was it was hard, honestly. Like you know, if you're in like an early relationship and then suddenly like and you're also a young couple as well, mm-hmm. and like going through something like that is not something that young couples expect to. Like I remember my dad saying to me when I was in hospital, he was like this must be really hard for Dan, my partner, because my dad was like, the only time I've ever seen your mum in hospital is when she was giving birth to you. Like, my parents, in terms of their relationship dynamic, had never had, like, a health scare in the way that we were, and we were in our 20s. And so it's just like, that's a really massive thing to navigate. Um, But honestly, like, I think because we got through it, we came out of it really strong. Um, I've heard lots of people who like young women people in similar situations to to me but who are single um often having kind of like those conversations about when do you disclose and like um you know like do you put it in your dating bio or like when you're in the uber home do you be like by the way yeah you do a a podcast about sex so this I, I, i imagine lots of people come to you for advice on sex for the stoma yeah it does it does come up a lot um obviously I don't have the um personal experience of having to like navigate being single and dating and having to disclose to new people um but it honestly like sex is the same (laughs) um if anything it's been like this opportunity to discover um 
new like sexy lingerie that kind of like covers it up but don't always cover it up um because sometimes I just can't be bothered but it has like opened this door to this like whole new world of like oh there are all these like really cute outfits that have access all areas but like hold it down because the main thing with like sexual activity is that the bag you don't want to rub it around but the bags have um at least the bag that I have it's got um this velcro thing so you can like fold it in half so it's honestly like it's just so out of the way you don't even notice it's there it sounds like for a lot of people the idea of it when it comes to a new relationship when it comes to sex when it comes to living with it is perhaps scarier than the reality and I think that's why if that's right it's so important that there are people out there like you who are getting on with life with a stoma and, and showing showing exactly that I think for a lot of things, the idea of it is scarier than the, than the reality, yeah. Does anybody else have any relationship stories that link to their IBS or bowels misbehaving that they want to share? Like, <laughs> this is not my story to share, so Alex is literally going to kill me. But, <laughs> like, when I first got, when I first started feeling very unwell and, and just really struggling with loads of things, I was recommended by this nutritionist who is actually insane, but that's a story for another day. Um, but she was like, Oh, if you're feeling really bloated, cause I was in so much pain. She was like, just have a, I think it was a teaspoon of bicarbonate of soda. Cause it's supposed to deflate you. Don't know if there's any medicine in that, but I was like, oh, okay, give it a go. And then I was like, Oh my God, like what's going to happen? Like we'd only been together like a year, but I was also like 20. So I was like, ah, um, I'm so embarrassed. And I was like, I'm just going to have to go and like sleep in the bathroom. Cause I'm just, it's going to make me fart and I just can't bear it. And it was just the most romantic thing he ever did. Cause he just looked at me and farted and was like, <laughs> now, you, now you can do what you want. I was like, oh my God, I love you so much. Oh, and like, that is, that, that is I actually know. really lovely. I know, it's actually, I love that eye contact. Yeah, no, <laughs> I love you. Like, thank you. My love language now. Um, he can be in the poo club. Yeah, well, he's, he's a welcome <laughs> member now. <laughs> An honorary member of the poo club. <laughs> All right, so, that, um, oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, we go did really, when I was like still in hospital, my partner like was also having conversations with the stoma nurses and like asking loads of questions. Um, so kind of like being involved in that whole process as well was like really important. But then once I was home, I remember being like, do you want to try one of the stoma bags? And so like, I like, we took off the adhesive and I put the stoma bag on him so that he could like actually like feel what it was like like on his skin um and would like walk around the house just being like oh okay and then I was like and this is how it comes off um so that he had that moment of like oh this is like literally like what your body feels like 24 7 um so we could have that moment of empathy sounds like marriage material glad you married him <laughs> so just just to echo kind of what Hannah was saying I certainly you know have seen so many patients with different types of gut issues and it can be really hard for people who are single uh to to broach that in a relationship um but what I would say is all of you know the patients who've told me when they finally you know built up the courage to do it their partners have been totally accepting and it actually has brought them together and made them stronger so so please don't feel like you can't tell, you know, your, um, your partner, or obviously you might not want to do it on the first date. Uh, but you know, when you build that relationship, it, it certainly shouldn't be something that you should be embarrassed about. It shouldn't. And I think like the anticipate, like we we're talking about with the stoma, the anticipation of that conversation, I'm sure is often worse than 
when they follow it through and, and have the conversation. So I want to talk about something that we all keep bringing up. It's so interesting. It's so fascinating. Like the science is gathering pace around this link between the gut and our brain. So the gut brain axis. Um, Megan, what, what is it all about? Yeah. So I think we've all known to some extent that this gut and the brain are connected. If you think of, you know, the metaphors we've all, you know, used historically, like someone gives me the poops, I can't stomach someone's behavior. You're going to make me sick, all those sorts of metaphors. So we've known that there is a link there. And I think it's only been in the last couple of years, I guess, where we've appreciated there's a new key player to this gut brain axis. And that is those trillions of microorganisms like the bacteria that live in the lower part of the gut. So the studies have shown that indeed these microbes can impact our mental health. So the communication between our gut and our brain is bi-directional. So they both impact each other. And there has been some really landmark studies. I won't go into the science of it, but if people are into that, look up the SMILES trial on my blog. I, I talk all about it. But it was a landmark study, which was for the first time in 2017, showing that nourishing our gut microbes through the right nutrition, plenty of plant-based diversity, can actually significantly improve clinical depression. Um, and now we know, you know, depression is very complex. There's many different things, but overall the trial did show that compared to this befriending type of counseling, this diet, which was really gut boosting, did have that really clinically relevant impact on people's mental health who've had moderate to severe depression. So I think that is a really important one to cover is the way that our gut microbes and our brain are connected. But then, of course, I think probably what's more related to uh, what everyone shared here is the other way around, is that our brain can also impact our gut, in particular gut symptoms. Um, and that's why in IBS there's actually been some incredible studies coming out showing that things like gut-directed hypnotherapy by a very, you know, a trained hypnotherapist, which targets the brain, can have remarkable impacts on people's uh, gut symptoms, particularly with IBS. And that really comes down to the way the gut and the brain are innovated. So there is this vagus nerve, which is like this communication pathway, which talks to the, the gut and the brain. So it's not, again, that it's just all in people's head. It just really changes that nerve and how it like innovates and talks to the gut and aggravates the, the movement of the gut, the release of hormones, um, and all those sorts of things, which we know certainly can trigger things like IBS. I have a question. <laughs> Please. You said the, the 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 microorganisms in the lower part of the gut. Do you mean the like the large intestine by that? And then what what about someone like me who doesn't have a large intestine? <laughs> Yeah, so this is what is so remarkable about our gut. So it's this nine-meter-long digestive tract. Obviously, Hannah, you've had about a meter and a half chopped off, mm -hmm. um, but it's so adaptable. Uh, so even though you've had that last lower end chopped off, the, the small intestine, the, the part that is six meters above that, actually starts to function a little bit like the large intestine. So your microbes have actually crawled up a little <laughs> bit higher and start to work more in your small intestine. So you still need to nourish them and they still do so much for you. Um, in fact, some really landmark research is coming out. And I guess this is probably for another, another podcast, but they're looking at fecal poop transplants yes, I've seen uh, as a cure for ulcerative colitis. Yes. My mom keeps trying to give me hers. <laughs> <laughs> 
what a gift <laughs> she i know she's like let me do it let me do it i'll do this for you i'm like so great but that's fine that's so sweet mom but you know what i'm gonna wait for the evidence so <laughs> it's really interesting so there's been some clinical trials in ibs and actually they haven't shown to have the benefit However, there's been studies in inflammatory bowel disease, specifically ulcerative colitis, and what they've... Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> what they've suggested, so, you know, because obviously there is that genetic mm-hmm. uh, component, so, you know, future generations. Um, what they've suggested is that it's not anyone's poop which can really help with UC. There are these super donors uh, where healthy people with specific types of gut microbes, and I say microbes because, yes, it's the bacteria, but if we get a bit more complex, it's also parasites and viruses, which although we historically were meant to fear, actually synergistically work to really look after us. So it's this community mm. that really you know, is, is so important for us, and it's that in specific people that are thought to have those benefits with UC and can can reverse it. But again, there are private clinics who are doing this. I would say definitely don't go there as a safety point um, because in animal models, at least, we've seen that you can transplant things like depression via these poop wow. transplants. Whoa. So yes, you might improve one condition, but you could actually contract another. So it's super important we wait for the full research to come out uh, before you start doing these poop transplants, you know, from, from YouTube. Imagine if that was you, like if you were someone who was like a super poop don't donor stick that in your dating bio <laughs> uh, so stick that on your cv yeah absolutely so i think it's it's really fascinating and the fact that you know the the science and the evidence in this area is just like speeding along at the moment and i well i've learned from megan actually that the best thing we can do to look after our gut bugs is try and eat at least 30 different types of plants per week which sounds really difficult but actually if you read her book it's not that difficult there are tips and tricks but Megan, what's the advice on things like um, prebiotics and probiotics? Yeah, so often people get confused between the two and it's understandable because there's one letter difference. So P-R-E, biotic, prebiotic is like a fertilizer for the microbes. And you can get that in supplement form. But what I recommend is you just eat that plant-based diversity and you're going to be getting in plenty of prebiotics um, because they are found in all of those plant-based foods. Now, in, in my clinic, there are a few scenarios where I would recommend a specific prebiotic supplement. Um, however, uh, you know, if the vast majority of people diet really is key. Um, and then we move on to the other probiotic, P-R-O-biotic. Now, these are the specific microbes, mostly bacteria, but some of them are actually yeast, which actually have shown to have a specific benefit for different conditions. Now, I think this whole world of the probiotics has been really misunderstood and there is a lot of, you know, commercial companies which are saying their probiotics are magical and all that sort of stuff. And now there's been a bit of a lash, uh, a, you know, a kickback where, you um, you know, consumers are like, well, actually, no, they're, you know, these aren't working for me. And the thing with probiotics is there's some, some are amazing and they do have really good evidence, but you need to match the specific probiotic for the specific benefit. So, you know, if you have iron deficiency, you're not going to go and just take vitamin D supplement and expect your iron deficiency to improve, are you? You really need to match the specific type of probiotic, so the specific type of bacteria or the yeast that are shown to have a benefit in your scenario scenario uh, or your case uh, in a clinical trial. And, and it sounds really prescriptive, but an example is, you know, if you, um, 
have to go on antibiotics for whatever reason. There is actually really good evidence to take a specific probiotic during your antibiotic period. It's called Saccharomyces boulardii. That's the name, scientific. And you would take it at 5 billion units twice a day throughout your antibiotic period and for a week after. Now, again, I know everyone's going, what the heck? But this is the way. If we want to have benefit from probiotics, we need to understand their use and treat them nearly like a medication. Like, be very specific. There's no point just pulling anyone. It's really good advice. And the point being that, yeah, you know, all right, yes, there are indications for them. But it's like you said, we're never going to remember what you just said. But that's how prescriptive it is. And that's why it takes a professional (laughs) who does understand what you just said, which is not me. As a GP, I didn't get it uh, in order for you to get the to get the benefit that you, that you want. Um, Lottie, you've dedicated a whole um, Instagram page to this very topic. So your page, You've Got This, is all about helping your gut and brain become best friends. Um, what inspired you to set that up? Um, so yeah, the gut brain axis, sort of the moment I discovered that, sort of everything fell into place. So for me, diet was the only way that I'd ever known how to manage IBS. And I like um, Megan mentioned the low FODMAP diet I did that I followed that but on my own with no guidance and I had an awful time I was stuck in the restriction phase I can see M nodding um a lot of a lot of people with IBS are the same um which is why it's so important that if you do need to go on this diet and not not everyone does but if you do to to get a pr- professional help and I didn't have that so I was stuck in this horrible phase of just fearing food and just thinking why am I all oh, I've had I've had chicken and rice every every day this week but today I'm getting I'm having a flare-up why is why is that possible and I didn't realize actually there could be other elements not just diet um obviously that's important but there are so many other lifestyle factors that can affect us and when I don't know I can't remember the at the moment but I think I'd be like I say I was listening to a lot of podcasts and reading reading books um and when I heard about this gut brain axis, I was like, wow, like I knew that, yeah, you could get butterflies and like you need a nervous poo before a work presentation or something. But I never actually properly thought about the science behind it. And with um, IBS, it's basically and Megan, please tell me if I'm wrong, but it's a, a miscommunication between your gut and your brain. They should be talking to each other both ways. And I, I try and think about it. I'm not very sciencey. So to put it simply for my own brain, I try and think of it as like they should be best friends. They should be working together to make you happy. And when you've got IBS, they've basically like had a row and they're just not having it. And they're just like having a constant battle between each other. So when we have something like a um, functional gut disorder like IBS, we have to work really hard to try and get them to be friends again. And that link between the gut and the brain and learning ways that we can relax that gut brain axis and things like meditation. So when I saw, I I mean, I remember people telling me about meditation and hypnotherapy for IBS and I was like, yeah, yeah, all right, it's fine. I've just cut out everything in my diet. I'll be cool. And I wasn't. And then when I started to do these things like meditating, um, thinking of exercise not as a punishment for my body but actually listening to it and maybe doing something slower rather than doing a crazy two-hour hit class I actually started to see the benefits so quickly but I just couldn't believe that it taken me like eight years to realize that like how had I seen so many people and so many specialists yet I learned this from a podcast um like it it was mad to me and I just thought we need to be talking about that more um so I set up you've got this to try and get people to realize that it's not just it's not just diet as important as there is there's loads of other things and how and I link to people like Megan and her book is just incredible I like I mean you'll probably get annoyed with me Megan because I spam so much 
much for my stories just tagging you every day <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> but it's I just think that was just like a light bulb moment that I wish I could give to everybody that's the struggles with IBS um so yeah the so you've got this is all about that and helping people realize that and see different ways that they can help um improve that that will relax that gut brain axis. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure people find that really helpful because there's lots of little images and pictures and cartoons and it's just really accessible, easy to understand and it's fun as well, which is what people want, don't they? So I'm just looking at your page yeah. right now as we're speaking. It's very pretty as well. Nice colours. Oh, thanks. I mean, I've self-taught myself um, illustration with the iPad Pro over lockdown and i am only managed to do about one a week. It takes me about 10 hours. I don't know how people <laughs> churn these out like two a day. Like honestly, it takes me ages but it is I think it's there's so much great research out there but when you go even now when you google it it is sort of like oh wow really hard to understand and it's mm. very sort of sciencey and I'm like okay my brain can't compute that so I try and break it down into a bit and with the help of I work with other dietitians as well to sort of help make fact check what I'm yeah. doing and just make make it simple because a lot of people aren't going to read these massive studies without being totally overwhelmed yeah. it isn't well the one thing like I think is really valuable becoming like friends with other people that have IBS and stuff is it's like it's not a one treatment fix is all like you guys will have you've just done a podcast with me I can't sit mm -hmm. still <laughs> I can't do meditation I, like I literally <laughs> I I'm a really highly strong person which is like the worst thing to have IBS with so when Lottie you mm -hmm. see on your Instagram like you're journaling and you're meditating I'm like like it's just not my cup of tea at all and I'm still like a hit workout like run even though it's not necessarily good for my tummy but I I, I have like I think I spent so long not trusting my body because I was like it's screw me over screw me over screw me over and then eventually it's like okay well we're just gonna have to work out like how to be together here because I'm gonna need this run and then I'm gonna like look after you in a minute like you know and I'll drink loads of water and we'll be fine and it was way more like I think it's finding the things that work for your because when you with the FODMAP you try the same things and we all try the same things because you we see a thing you're like I'm gonna try that thing 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 and then it's like you've actually just got to try like your own thing your own thing that's I'm explaining this so badly but just because we have a very similar condition Dottie and I and in lots of ways very similar story but also just very different ways of dealing with it now so well I think you've actually you've actually sort of summed it up really really nicely there and I think it can be really disheartening for people with a condition like IBS where it's not a one you know one solution fits all not at all it can in fact the, the opposite is is true there are some commonalities but actually it's so closely linked to stress isn't it and i i really believe that the biggest epidemic of of our generation is is stress we live in a world now where we are all Ex, ex, we're all moderately stressed most of the time. And that's what I believe, why we've seen such a rise in conditions and why it all makes sense that there is this inextricable link between our brain and our gut and the hormones and the chemicals that are circulating around our bodies constantly. And whilst we know for managing stress for whilst for one person, a 20 minute sitting in a room with just a candle will help them. For another person, it's going out and doing hill sprints. For another person, it's I don't know, something else, whatever. So I think it's really important what you summed up there, Emily. And it, one of the, probably the best things we can all do is better learn to listen to and understand our bodies and what our bodies need. And that might be very different 
from somebody else it's the broken like leg analogy it's it's you like you wouldn't feel ashamed trying the things to like trying the physio or I don't know talking about or whatever um and it's I I, I always just have to remind myself of like I wouldn't feel bad because I think guilt's a massive part of my stress as well I'm like oh I'm I just I feel guilty or I can't eat what this person's cooked I can't go to this person I can't take my boyfriend to this restaurant whatever it is um, but if I had a broken leg, I wouldn't feel bad putting it on Instagram. I wouldn't yeah. feel bad telling anyone. I wouldn't feel bad going to a physio or, you know, taking a bit of time to learn how to walk again. And yeah, just... Well, the danger is it creates this vicious cycle, doesn't it? Because, you know, say, for example, you, you're unable to eat or enjoy what somebody's cooked for you. That makes you feel really stressed and upset, which then makes your symptoms worse. And it's like, you can't yeah. win. Speaking of that vicious cycle, and has anybody felt that... Um, they've their mental health has been largely I'm sure for all of you it's the case but has anyone felt that their mental health has been impacted um by their gut condition and happy to talk about it yeah for me massively um I suffer suffer with anxiety and Megan you might uh, you will know the stat but there's like a massive percentage of IBS patients is it like 70 percent what is the What's the stat? Yeah, no, it is. It is around that figure um, yeah. that suffer with anxiety because there is a lot of links there. But again, it's not all all the cases. And with IBS, it's so complex that actually, if you get a gut infection, you're at a fourfold increased risk of getting IBS in subsequent years. So there's many different factors, mm. but anxiety seems to then exacerbate uh, whatever the disruption of the microbes is. So yeah, no, uh, anxiety is is massively common. It's, yeah, and that's that's something that. Yeah, it is a massive vicious circle and even down to the point of like worrying about bloating. Like when I, I mean, that's something I don't really worry about anymore because it's just part of my life now. And I sort of understand now how my body works. But when I before I've sort of really understood my body, it would be worrying about bloating. Even say, for example, if we go back to when I would be going out with the girls, like I'd worry about bloating and then I would feel bloated. And then that bloating would then cause me more anxiety and it'd just be this horrible loop and going out to eat and every sort of social situation just made me so anxious it was like a horrible time and I say the anxiety was much worse than the the pain in the stomach I felt because it was just constant and just not and I know there is so much so much worse things to have than IBS but it's still something that really like it's still a really valid illness um, and something that does is really debilitating and I think getting out that loop was such a hard thing to do which is why for me I found that understanding the the sciencey bit really helped to sort of just make it make me realize okay this is this is a thing you're not it's not in your head this is normal um and there is a reason that it's happening so now I try and actually talk to a bit like Emerson but talk to my gut and my brain so if I'm feeling stressed if I start to feel that sort of in my mind I, can, I sometimes will be like right gut we're feeling it now we're getting a bit stressed but it's all right you chill out like it's going to be fine I'm gonna I'm gonna sort this out myself you don't need to get involved and I know that sounds so <laughs> silly but sort of almost talking each other down but actually treating them as in my you've got this I call them Brian and Gertrude so Brian the brain and Gertrude the gut and almost getting them to talk to each other and say it's going to be all right we don't need to both fight this fight let's relax that gut brain axis and we'll be okay and that that I still I still suffer with anxiety but it does definitely help before it gets to that point of severe bloating or however I react in lots of ways it's helped me with mine I think which is really weird just listening to you talk I think it's given me the 
a lot more power over my own autonomy, my own existence, my own decisions. I was a very easily led person. And I think Mm. you just have to prioritise yourself in a way that I just probably wouldn't have done before. It would have have been way too late. Um, And I still get, you saying there about restaurants, I still get so anxious when someone's like, we're going to the pub for dinner. I'm like, oh my God. Like I'm a vegetarian by choice, but then I don't eat anything else because I react to it. And I'm just like, I'm just going to be hungry. And then I just think, well, why am I going out if I'm just going to be hungry? It's not worth it. I'm not going. And that's (laughs) such a boundary for me that I never would have put in if it hadn't been for my health and I've just realized that there's so many decisions I've had to make like reading Megan's book it what the what, what I found really valuable was the like having the FODMAP light options it's the first time I've given options for ages and then you just realize that you have it at, at one point you take the diagnosis into your own hands you need to stop looking to every other professional to give you your cure and you can just trust yourself to manage it and that has helped my anxiety somehow massively because I've just trusted I've just learned to trust myself in new ways, which is pretty cool. So it's not all doom and gloom, basically. <laughs> no, definitely. I, I think learning learning for yourself and trusting yourself is so, so important. And Emma, I definitely need to take some boundaries from your book. <laughs> when it comes to snacking, Kind believe you shouldn't have to choose between delicious and nutritious. They've brought both together. Plant-based protein boost bars with recipes packed full of flavour and high-quality ingredients. With three delicious flavours to choose from, including toasted caramel, double dark chocolate and crunchy peanut butter. And with each bar containing 12 grams of protein, what's not to love? Shop in-store or online at superdrug.com. No artificial colours, flavours or preservatives and gluten-free. All contain nuts. What I'd love to do to, to wrap us up is just go around and we'll probably come to Megan last and just I'd like each of you to give one tip to people who are listening to the podcast who might be having whatever tummy troubles they're having um, one tip that you'd like to give them who wants to go first go on Lottie I don't mind. I would say talk, talking to people massively, um, whether that's, I mean, ideally a GP at first, but once you do have a diagnosis, talking to friends, to family, finding your support community that could be online um, or like even just search search your illness with, with a hashtag, with hashtag IBS, you'll find thousands of people. And I'm not saying listen to them for advice because like we've said, everyone's different, but just knowing that you're not alone is such a, such a comfort in what can be an isolating um, place. And it can bring so much positivity. Like, look, we're all talking here and we would never have done that if it wasn't for our health condition. So I think talking is definitely my number one tip. I think I would say know your normal because we've spoken a lot about how even though there's overlap with our conditions, they're also different. And even like with ulcerative colitis, which you know I've had to have medically treated other people with ulcerative colitis, their symptoms show up in all sorts of different ways and will have had different medical journeys to me as well. Um, so it's if you know you're normal, you'll be in a better position if you notice anything change and if you notice anything different and tracking that. So anytime I've been in a flare-up, I would always keep a little poo book and it would have like the time that I went um, and whether there was like blood or mucus and and all of that stuff as well. And then I would also track if I like had um, abdominal pain, but without the urgency. So I would like, I would, I was tracking all of my 
all of my symptoms so that when, then when I do go see a doctor, um, I'm like, here is all of the information. This is the data. We love that. We yeah. love that. We love a diary, <laughs> a migraine diary, a poo diary, yeah. a headache diary, whatever. We love a diary. It's really <laughs> important to track all. And, and this goes for like all, not just your gut health, but like all sorts of different things. Like if you're tracking your menstrual health, like you said, with migraines as well, like it's so important. Like as soon as you like, you're like oh my body's done this a couple of times recently that might be a good sign to go let's start tracking how often this is happening and what is going on so then and then book yourself a doctor's appointment and take that data to them oh well love you forever thanks (laughs) thanks for that hannah emily um i would say that you are still allowed to trust your body like even though it feels like it's rebelling against you like the things that you're feeling are valid and there are people who are feeling worse than you but it doesn't make what you're feeling any less stressful or painful or debilitating so like let yourself feel what you're feeling but also remember that it is okay to trust your body and that your body is your friend and it's not doing this on purpose so try not to be angry with it because getting angry with my body just made it so much worse and forgiving it for its like ailment just treating it like a different I don't know relative or someone that I love or whatever just made it a lot easier to forgive it for its mishaps so yeah just give yourself a bit of a break would be my advice thank you that's lovely and Megan yeah, I have to say, don't don't suffer in silence. I'm seeing so many people who have who've come to me after ten or so years of just, you know, being scared to eat out, you know, not enjoying relationships, feeling like they're closed. And once we get them feeling much better, it's not always a cure, but they're feeling a lot better. They're like, oh my god, I feel like I've wasted a decade of my life suffering when I don't need to. And yeah, so don't suffer any longer. There is now really good evidence for a range of different strategies. And it's, you know, the strategies are different for everyone, but we do have, you know, a range of different strategies that we know to draw on and works in about 80% of people. So make sure you do get the help. And if you get turned back from, you know, one healthcare professional who might just say it's just IBS, don't let that put you off your journey. You know, go to another one and keep asking until you get the right, the right healthcare. And eventually you will get, you know, on the waiting list for dietitians. It might take a bit of time, um, but, you know, make sure you get that. And then of course, follow following you know these ladies because I think they do they do really offer a lot of support without overstepping the boundary of giving people you know advice in terms of eat this don't eat this do this don't do that so they don't overstep their boundaries uh, but they really do I think help people accept that sometimes symptoms really are crappy and they can get you down and some of the strategies that have worked for them um, so I think having that support network is really important as well. That was more than one strategy. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's great. No, I completely agree with all of that. And I just, you know, just to, to just to back up what you said about you are always entitled to a second opinion, a third opinion. You know, if you are struggling and you are suffering and you feel like you're being fobbed off by your GP or another healthcare professional, see somebody else, um, you know, and if you need to see somebody else, see somebody else. Keep on at us because, um, you know, we are there to help. And if you're not feeling like you're being helped, then you should keep asking. So I just want to 
end off by just saying a huge, huge thank you to all of you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Lottie. And thank you, Megan, for joining me today. Um, it was such an interesting conversation. I genuinely think that that is going to help so many people. So big thanks and big love. And thank you for having me in the poo club. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Make sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you're loving Superdrug's healthful podcast, please do leave us a review. And if you'd like to know more about gut health, you can watch me on Superdrug TV.